Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Thank you, Kat. Thank you, everyone. Great uh, to be here and see so many old friends. I've sort of sat here wanting to go and talk to someone over there, then catch someone here, and, and it's not possible to do all of that uh, and, um, and do the service at the same time. So lovely to see everyone. And, uh, and great to see some new faces as well, people uh, who I don't think we've met, so uh, wonderful to see you too. This is the last week of our sermon series of this term, following Jesus in a broken, uh, Faithful Presence, Following Jesus in a Broken World. The, the, and the main thrust of this sermon series has really been a question, how can we live with faithful presence? Faithful? How can we live obedient to Jesus and all his challenging demands and requirements as well as being present. In other words, not retreating from the world. Some people have worked out how to be faithful. They've said, if I'm really going to be faithful, I need to build a monastery and retreat. And that way, maybe I can lead a godly life. Others have got a virtual monastery. It's called Christian TV, Christian radio, Christian tapes, Christian friends, and trying to avoid ever going outside that bubble. And of course, that is not what the Bible calls us to, not what Jesus' teachings were, which was live faithfully to me in the middle of a broken world. Be, be part of it. And so the question we've been asking has been, how on earth do we do that in these challenging times? Now, this morning, I am going to largely tell you some stories. Some of you will be delighted about that. Others of you disappointed. Uh, but I want to... I tell you three stories of three people who have lived, who've worked out how to live with faithful presence. And I've taken three people from different centuries and different backgrounds, uh, different social backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, women and men. And I hope that they will help and they will encourage us as we finish this uh, series to live faithfully ourselves. One of the reasons that I've chosen to tell some stories, particularly this morning, well, just a, a handful of reasons. Firstly, I hope that they will inspire you. I hope that they will remind you that we are not the only ones who've lived in challenging times, that others have as well. And sometimes when they've lived faithfully, some extraordinary things have happened. Not, I think, because they were particularly special. When you actually get beyond the Christian paperback stories of the Christians of the past, you find they were just as broken and messed up as the rest of us. But God chose to do some wonderful things. And so I hope that these will inspire us. I hope they won't make us think, well, that person was different for me. They really weren't. They were just like us. But some pretty amazing things happened. Secondly, I hope it will expand your imagination to the sort of things that might be possible. We're told that by Paul that we pray to a God who can do more than we can possibly ask or imagine. So everything that I will share with you today is within the realms of God's possibilities. But I hope it will give you some new ways of thinking and some new thoughts as to how to pray and then how he might answer your prayers the third reason I want to tell you these, and we'll go to the Bible in a minute, is because I want to finish this series with a call to pray. 
Christchurch London, brothers and sisters, friends, let's pray that in our generation there may be men and women who will live faithfully to God in the middle of this broken world. And fourthly, I hope it will give you faith, which is a special gift from God, which persuades us on the inside that he would do things that otherwise he wouldn't do. So that's why I want to do the story thing. And I and we are not alone in seeing the value of that. Here is what Habakkuk said. The prophet Habakkuk, who lived in similar times to today in many ways, uh, the nation with Judah was in decline. There was political turmoil and things were generally bad. Here's what he says, Habakkuk 3, verse 1. Our prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk is essentially doing what I hope we can do today, which he's saying, I think back, and then, God, would you do what you've done in the past again? Now, for Habakkuk, he is steeped in the Old Testament stories. So he's steeped in Abraham, being obedient, going and having no idea where he's going to. He's steeped in Joseph, who suffers innocently for many years before seeing God's promises come about. He's with the people walking through the wilderness, trusting God for food every day. And we too should be steeped in the stories of the Bible. And by telling you stories that have happened since the Bible was completed, this is not not because these stories are better. This is sort of an add-on to standing in all the stories of the scriptures and using those to pray, God, do these things again in our day. But anyway, for now, I want to tell you three stories. And I, want, and I trust that with each of them, they will be examples of how to live with faithful presence. And they will cause us to pray, do it again in our day. So story number one. This one is probably the hardest for us to really relate to, partly because it happened so many years ago and in such a different context. It was in London, and it was, or much of it was based in London 500 years ago. If you were a follower of Jesus here in this city 500 years ago, unless you were part of the ruling elite, you had no way of understanding the Bible. The Bible was in Latin, It was illegal to read it in English, and unless you were high-born, you therefore had no understanding of the Bible or the services that you had to attend every week. The authorities made clear how important this was because if they found Bible or other spiritual literature in English, they would take it to St. Paul's, St. Paul's Cross. The cathedral wasn't built at this time, and they would have great bonfires of literature. They would also make it clear that if they found you reading the Bible in English so you could understand it, then you are likely to get burnt too. So that's the deal, if you live in London around 1500. Here's the challenge. If you are, let's imagine, a young English man with a gift for languages, you've also got this dream of using your languages to translate the Bible and get it into the hands of every plowboy. That was was the phrase that this guy used. In other words, to empower people, the masses, the people, to find God themselves. 
And what happened if you have this gift and you have this dream and something has just been invented which, is, which would enable your translations to go round the country very, very fast, aka the printing press? Well, there is a challenge of faithful presence. Different from the challenges of our time, the Bible is in Latin, nobody can read it, but you know that you can translate it. Not only do you know you can translate it, but you can get it into the hands of people because of what was then known as modern technology. Challenges, so William Tyndale comes to London. And he actually goes to visit the bishop, Bishop Tunstall of London, and the bishop says, I will have nothing of this. There are seven printing presses in London at this point in time. The bishop controls them all. Tyndale realises that if he is going to be faithful, it also means risking his life. It means leaving his country. The only way to translate and print the Bible was to go onto the continent, which is exactly what William Tyndale does. He lives there for the next 10 years. We don't have a single known address of where he lived over these next 10 years because he was constantly moving and constantly in disguise. There's not a single picture of him that he allowed to be painted or drawn during his life because that would have helped the king's agents who scoured the continent for him to try and find him. Here he was, passionate about the Bible and people knowing Jesus as a result. He literally wrote on the cover of these Bibles as he produced them, if you read this, you will find God. And he would move from place to place and he'd find publishers who were prepared to publish under fake names. And they would say they were in one town where actually they were printing in another. And these Bibles started to flood. They would come up the Thames into London and they would come to the Norfolk Broads in the night time, and they would be smuggled into this country. There was no difficulty finding smugglers who would go because the copy of these Bibles sold for so much that whether you were a believer or not, you'd take them in. And they were taken by eager seekers, and they would be read often at night. And Tyndale wrote the Bible to be read aloud so that those that could read would read while others sat around and listened normally with somebody on watch at the door. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people came to faith. And as quickly as the authorities grabbed these books and burnt them, more flooded into the country. After 10 years, he was caught at the only known address we know in Antwerp. He was taken by the Catholic uh, authorities on the continent and 18 months later they'd tried him as a heretic they'd not found him guilty so they so he had the so he had the freedom to be strangled before his body was burnt if you were a heretic you were just burnt and as he was at the gallows his last words were lord open the eyes of the king of england which was a prayer god answered for it wasn't long after that that the Bible was allowed to be read. You and I have the gift that we have today. It's funny, as I've read this, I, when I first came across this, I, I started to value the Bible in a new way. I had no idea that it had cost so much in this country. Some of you are thinking, David, for goodness sake, your history is appalling. But there you go. So Tyndale 
was one who worked out that faithful presence sometimes means losing your life to gain it. Sometimes means that the abundant life is only found by giving away what we have. That sometimes faithful presence means radical obedience. We often talk about being relevant. We certainly want to be understandable. Help people go on a journey, find what we found. But Tyndale's a great example of someone who paid a great cost at the same time. And interestingly, to be present actually meant going outside the nation in order to come back into the nation. Not only did that Bible of his lead to many people coming to faith and actually the foundation for the Puritans, which was a radical church movement that most of you would have felt very at home with in the next generation. But that translation became the basis for the King James Bible. 80% of Tyndale's words were used by the translators for the King James Bible. It said that no other book has shaped the English language more than the King James Bible, which essentially is Tyndale's translation. Up behind me, if we can, Dan, have the next slide, is a, uh, just some examples of the phrases. These are Tyndale's phrases that 500 years later are still phrases that we use today. Brothers and sisters, sometimes faithful presence really does mean laying down our lives. Sometimes God asks us to do things if we're to be faithfully present. That costs a huge amount. It is true that only when a seed goes into the ground and dies that there is new life. O Lord, renew in our day your acts. I've been struck as I've thought about this, that there are certain things that only God can do. That's why we pray. There are certain things which only we can do. That's why we have his word. And it may be that for some of us, in whatever part of our lives right now, to be faithfully present is to pay a significant cost. Well, William Tyndale goes ahead of us. And he gives us an example. As he imitates Jesus, so he gives an example for us to pay the price, to give what's needed in order that we may follow Christ. Story number one. Number two, a woman who lives 300 years after Tyndale and who came from a very different background. In fact, she came from the Barclay Banking family. Elizabeth Fry came to faith as a teenager. And she used to, got into the habit of praying this prayer daily. Lord, can I, how can I bring you glory today? It's a great prayer to pray. If you're short of prayer, if you're short of what to pray tomorrow, or you're short of time to pray very much tomorrow, why don't you pray this prayer? What can I do today to bring you glory? As a grown woman, she married, she moved to London, and she started to hear stories about the main London prison, Newgate Prison. It's actually on the site of where the Old Bailey is now. There were these murmurings that if you ever went into Newgate Prison, it was like going into living hell, particularly the women's prison there. But Elizabeth Fry couldn't get out of her heart this sense that this is what the Lord was asking her to do. When she prayed, Lord, what can I do today to bring you glory? 
She thought she heard the whisper, go to Newgate Prison and see what's happening there. So in the end, she did. She arrived and the prison governor did not want to let her in. When she managed to persuade the prison governor, who was nervous that she and her smart finery would get attacked, that he told her to take off her watch and, and uh, uh, other, other you know, accoutrements of wealth, but he let, her, he let her the next step when she got to the cell. The warder refused to go into the cell with her. The cell was a dark room, a large room with 300 women inside. There were no bathroom facilities, so the smell or stench was overwhelming. No beds, everybody slept on straw, and nothing to do, so there was constant violence, drunkenness, and mental health problems. If you had children who were under the age of seven, you brought them into prison with you. So there were lots of beautiful but feral kids running around as well. And on one of Elizabeth's early visits, she was shocked to see two mothers, one of them undressing the corpse of a child, the other taking the clothes and putting them onto her child. What does faithful presence mean there? When the whole of society is ignoring this and the Spirit has kept prompting you to be there. Well, for Elizabeth Fry, she again prayed, what should I do? And what she felt the Spirit speak to was go and spend a night in the prison. Be with these women. Of course, it has the aroma of Jesus about it, doesn't it? I mean, it's funny that Elizabeth Fry going and spending a night in a prison seems a bigger deal to us than Jesus leaving glory and coming and being with us. But actually, the dynamic is very similar. If Tyndale reminds us of the crucifixion, Elizabeth Fry reminds us of the incarnation, the call to be. And so she went and she spent a night the next year. She also, during her life, she managed to have 11 children. So there are some pauses in the reforming of prison story of Elizabeth Fry while she was doing some other things as well. The next year she goes and spends a night in prison. And of course when you go and be with people it actually doesn't take very long to work out what the problems are. It can be very hard to work out what the problems are if you stay away away. But if you get up close and you talk and you watch and you listen it's not very difficult to work out what the problems are. And she realised that some really basic things like self-care and sanitation would make an enormous difference. She also realised that something needed to be done for these children and that a school or some sort of education would make a huge difference. And she needed, she said, I needed these women to understand what Jesus has done as well. So she started right, reading the Bible every Friday to them. This became such a popular event that it had to be ticketed in the end because so many people wanted to come and listen to her reading the Bible. So as she went to be with those in greatest need, God rose her up, humble yourself before the Lord, and in due course, she was the first woman ever to testify in front of a House of Commons committee. She would often spend nights in prison and would always invite influential people to come and spend the night with her. I would have loved to have seen some of that. 
To those who were in charge of prison policy and building prisons, she would say this, when you build a prison, you had better build with the thought ever in your mind that you and your children may occupy the cells. Prisons started to change. Mayors and sheriffs from surrounding regions visited Newgate and began initiating reforms in their prisons. In fact, ultimately, Elizabeth Fry, listening to the Spirit and following Jesus, had such an effect on our nation that for years, if you had a five-pound note in your wallet and you looked at it, you would see a picture of Elizabeth Fry sitting, reading the scriptures to prisoners in Newgate. For Elizabeth Fry, faithful presence was a matter of caring for those everybody else was ignoring. For Elizabeth Fry, faithful presence was a matter of caring for those that everybody else was ignoring. What does that mean for us? Now, we could go big picture, I'm not going to, but just to say, and some of us in this room work in this area and we know this, prisons need some attention today from followers of Jesus too. Just putting it out there. But let's just try and apply this in a way that, that all of us can work out for the minute. Jesus puts the poor in everybody's life. Jesus puts the poor in everybody's life. I was talking with a banker the other day. They said, he's not put the poor in my life. I said, oh yes, he has. Because I was able to tell the story of a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, who had actually been the individual in her institution that had campaigned for the cleaners to have London's living wage. It was a wonderful story which ended with the cleaners all buying flowers for this individual who just noticed. Now this banker, who should remain anonymous just because we all do this, she had missed the fact, when I said, how about the cleaners in your office? She said, oh yeah. How about the people that you pass on your commute? Or more likely, the people in your social circles. It's my contention, every, social, every one of us has a social circle somewhere in that. You have the lonely, you have the sick, you have the weak, you have those that are vulnerable. You have aged parents, you have young children, you have neighbours that need us. Faithful presence and the challenge of Elizabeth Fry, amongst other things, says find the poor in your life and show them the love of Jesus. That's not something for the call of those who are to be professionals in this area, of which there are a number in this room and that is absolutely fantastic. This is just something you're meant to do because you love Jesus and you want to follow him. Faithful presence means I'm ready to be radical and if necessary defy the King of England to get the Bible into the hands of the plowboy. Faithful presence says, I will not ignore those that everybody else ignores, but I will be with them in order to show them what Jesus has done for me. Third story. Third example is a man that was alive 100 years ago. We've gone 1500, 1800, the 20th century. He was the son of former slaves, had been raised in extreme poverty, and at one point his mother's personal belongings were valued at 55 cents. You could say that William Seymour had a few disadvantages in life. 
It seems that even as a child, the Holy Spirit would visit him with prophetic visions. And he had this longing and in due course this conviction that the Spirit of God should be poured out in a fresh way and that if we were to live faithfully present that we needed the empowering of the Holy Spirit to do so. He had all sorts of obstacles stoned at him. He was from the southern states in the USA and consequently was there, you know, uh, wanted to go to Bible college and was told because of segregation, you can't. He said, I will. And he sat in the corridors with the doors open in order to get his theological education because he wasn't allowed in the classroom. When he took up her preaching role in Los Angeles, travelling north, he preaches his first sermon to the congregation on the power of the Holy Spirit. They dislike it so much that when he go back, goes back the next day, he finds the door locked and chained that is one of the shortest jobs that anyone has ever had. So what does William Seymour do? What do you and I do? When we come from challenge, have lived with challenge, but just have this thing in our heart that we can't get rid of. In his case, that if we're going to live faithfully present lives, we need the Holy Spirit. Where he got invited at this point to have some meetings in a house, a suburban house in LA. So he went. And after two or three days, as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit was poured out in a special way. And news of this got out, it always gets out. When the Holy Spirit gets poured out in a special way, it's so utterly intoxicating that there's always a crowd before you know it. Well, the crowd gathered on the porch of this place and there were so many people on the porch that the porch collapsed. They had to find new premises. It's a wonderful story, partly because the premises that he found was an old church, but more recently it had been used as a stable. Eight foot high ceiling, flies everywhere, and if you've been, and it gets hot. And sometimes, and, and they moved there and what became known as the Azusa Street Revival began. For the next three years, meetings started at 11 o'clock in the morning and went until midnight. Sometimes 1,500 people gathered in that tiny room amongst all the flies and the heat. It was said that most of the time you couldn't see William Seymour's head. The uh, lectern here was made of some fruit packing boxes turned upside down and he would spend a lot of his time praying with his head in the packing boxes. He said he wasn't bothered because he thought that this was the Holy Spirit really leading this rather than anyone else. Extraordinary stories started to come of the people, look at people experiencing the presence of God a whole block away from this little chapel. People coming and finding healing. There was very little preaching, but essentially as people experienced the Spirit and it changed their lives, they would come to the front and they would share. And so they said sometimes so many people would be overcome by the Spirit and find themselves lying on the floor as a result that the Azusa Street me uh, meetings resembled a slain forest of trees. It was probably the most significant event that led to the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. Because people came from all around the world to this. 
today, one in ten people in this world are Pentecostals. One in ten of the, what is it, seven, eight billion that there now are in the world are Pentecostals. 25% of Christians are Pentecostals because of William Seymour's faithfulness. His refusal to allow the past to shape his future and his determination to pursue God until God gave what the church and what actually the whole world needed as well. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. As a result of these three people, there was spiritual renewal. Tyndale got the Bible into our hands. Seymour gave us, in many ways, the experience of the Spirit that we find today. Tyndale's shaping of the Bible has given us the very language that we have. There was culture renewal. Elizabeth Fry is an icon and an example for us of how you do social renewal. Faithful presence, lived out by three individuals, leading to the very things that God calls the church to today. Cultural, social, spiritual renewal. Normally, I have a watch at the front, and I've obviously left mine over there. What's the time, somebody? 10.58. Let's stand. (laughs) Maybe the band can come back, but it does just give us a couple of minutes where we can just pray. And I want to pray, I want to invite the Spirit of God to come upon us as we've been talking about Seymour and the others today. Let's just stand before him. Spirit has been speaking to you whilst I've been preaching. And we're told that the Spirit leads us into all truth. In other words, he often instructs us individually. The Spirit will have prompted some of you in ways on things that I have not even mentioned, but which have crossed your mind, or you just thought, oh, that is something I need to take note of. And it's those things I want to start by praying for. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters as I pray for myself. And I want to ask, Heavenly Father, that you would enable us to be those that live with faithful presence. I pray for obedience. As I pray for myself, I thank you for William Tyndale. I thank you that not only did he put the Bible in my hands, but that he's given me an example of what radical pursuit of God means. And I want to pray that you would birth in people here that radical pursuit. I thank you that as I was worshipping this morning, I felt like I was in a room of disciples. I was in a room of people who were serious about following Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you would help those of us that know that we've got to die, that there's a seed that needs to fall into the ground. If you know that that is the challenge for you this morning, that There's a seed that part of you needs to die, something that needs to be given up, obedience that needs to be found in an area. Do you want to just raise your hand where you are? 
I'd just love to pray particularly uh, for you guys at this point. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these men and women. Now, I pray you'd give them courage and you'd give them grace to surrender. I pray you'd give them grace to surrender. I pray that you'd remind them of the abundance that is on the other side. The abundance of fruitfulness and the abundance of life. Bless them, I pray. I want to pray for the anointing that was on Elizabeth Fry to rest on this congregation. I want to pray for the anointing of the Holy Spirit that was on Elizabeth Fry to be on women and men here now in Jesus' name. I pray you'd give us grace to go and to be. To go and to be. I feel like that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to others of us. I'm calling you to go and to be. I'm not calling you to fancy programs. I'm not calling you to speak to the media. I'm just saying go and be. Just go and be. And allow your heart to be broken and ask me what to do next. I thank you for that heart of compassion that is in this room. Now bless, bless that in Jesus' name. And we thank you for Charles Seymour. Grateful for him. And we thank you for his pursuit of you. Now Holy Spirit, be poured out this morning. As this crowd worship and as we pray and as we express our heart's longings would you visit us that we may have the power the spiritual wherewithal to bring glory to you come Holy Spirit and set our hearts aflame in Jesus name